0: I am Aswin Punathambekar, the Director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication.
1: This is Jing Wang, the Senior Research Manager at CARG.
0: Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing
0: contemporary issues.
1: listeners. Welcome to the podcast, Global Media and Communication. I'm your host today. My name is Florence Madenga, and I'm a doctoral candidate at the Annenberg School for Communication and a doctoral fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, our guest, Dr. Julia Tacona, is the author of Left to Our Own Devices, Coping with Insecure Work in a Digital Age, published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. Um, Dr. Ticona, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure,
0: Um, my name is Julia Ticona. I am an assistant professor at the Annenberg School for Communication um, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I am a researcher, I'm a teacher, um, I'm based in the United States. I research people who live and work in the United States for the most part, um, but I am utterly indebted to and inspired by Global Communication Scholarship, which is why I'm really excited to be here today.
1: So, so excited to have you. <laughs> um, so first, before we start, I really, really want to say how much I loved reading this book. Um, it's really enjoyable. It's well-written. It's very accessible. Uh, and it does pack a lot of theory um, and a lot of methods. So a lot of work went into it yeah, um, you. and a lot of time. Um, this is also your first book, which also to me, <laughs> felt incredible. You started this a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of the, this book, how you even got to this idea? Mm. Uh, what first sparked your interest in the topic, and how you began sort of conceptualizing some of the key points um, and arguments in here?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this was my dissertation research, right? Oh, so God. this is like the dissertation book. Um, that took a really long time um, to come out. And I think, uh, you know, we can, we can get to this uh, a little bit later, but I think it, it ended up working nicely because in a lot of ways, even though I did not plan for this at all, um, the public discourse about technology and work kind of caught up to me as I was doing this work, which as a graduate student is both really exciting and opportune kind of thing to happen, but also utterly terrifying, right? Because you're absolutely concerned that... Um, the moment's just going to pass you by and run you over or your work is not going to be, you know, uh, relevant to this big public conversation that's happening now. So when I think about what kind of inspired this book is it's kind of a two-part answer, I guess, because there's like there's the answer of why I was inspired to do the research Mm -hmm. to begin with. And then there's the second kind of answer, which is how I was inspired to kind of talk about it in the way that I talk about it or write this book in the way that I wrote it. Yeah. Um, So the first was that, you know, I've like always been fascinated by technology and popular understandings of technology. Um, I came up kind of in the era where, you know, in high school we were still like scrimping and saving and like begging our parents to allow us to have cell phones, right? It just wasn't like an everyday part of our lives yet. Um, and I was totally fascinated by the big feelings that people seem to have, the adults in my life and the, and the you know, my peers, about technology. Just everybody had an opinion about it. Everybody had um, a fear, a hope, a desire, a something of, about these things that seem to be, you know, taking over our lives in different ways. And as somebody who loves to talk to people and like to talk to them about how they're feeling, It's an ideal way to get people to talk about their feelings, right, because they're just everybody has these big feelings about them. Um, And the other thing that was important to me is, you know, I was reading a little bit at this time, you know, even pretty early on, like in my undergrad kind of years about technology and, you know, I was reading these uh, books by these like engineer public figure type people like Ray Kurzweil and these futurist type people. Um, science fiction, things like that, and other kinds of, like, elite discourses about technology, trying to understand, like, what are we all worried about, or what are we talking about here? Um, and I realized more and more that those, that kind of writing, that kind of discourse was not what I was interested in. I was really interested in, like, the backyard conversation, or the bar conversation, or yeah. the kitchen table conversation about, like, how people talk about this stuff in their everyday lives, and how they make sense of it in their everyday lives, right? Yeah. Um not separate from these like elite discourses, but um, you know, in a different way than than they were being articulated. Um, and then the second kind of piece of this was when I started to write this into a book, right? When because um, basically the way the research proceeded was, I conceptualized this research project as a PhD student in pre-uber times, right? Um, long time ago, right? <laughs> and I was. You know, happy on my way, doing my research, recruiting, trying to find people to talk to me, being aggressively friendly, as you've heard me say before about how to do qualitative research. And all of a sudden, like Travis Kalanick happened. And, you know, the CEO, this like big bad boy, brash CEO of Uber, was like taking over the media cycle. And everybody was talking about in the post kind of 2009 recession world. About these uh, the quote-unquote gig economy and all of these platforms and apps that this very small proportion of workers were using in a very public way in order to navigate this quote-unquote new world of work that we were in, right in the post post nine uh, post 2009 2007 recession, um, and that kind of stopped me in my tracks for a bunch of different reasons. Not only because I felt like I had been doing this for a little while and what i wanted to say was not being reflected in that large public conversation at all right um i was talking to people who did not have quote unquote technology jobs who were not using uber who were not using um lyft or any particular dedicated platform but who were doing work all over the economy and lots of different kinds of jobs and still like grappling with the effects of the recession um, and using technology in this really important way. And those folks were completely um, left out of this conversation. Um, And so when I was uh, panicking about what do I do with this research project that does not seem to be speaking to, does not seem to be um, included in this huge public conversation that's happening, um, instead of being, I shouldn't say instead of, In addition to being terrified that the news cycle was going to eat my lunch as a researcher, right? And nobody was (laughs) going to care what I had to say because I'm not talking to Uber drivers, I started to think about, like, what are they missing, right? Like, what am I saying? Um, Who are these folks that I've spent so much time with? Who am I talking to that needs to be heard in that larger conversation and is not being heard? So that's kind of how I started to turn the dissertation project into a book that I hoped would have some kind of something to say to this larger public conversation.
1: Yeah, and I would say it was really refreshing to um, read this and see things that I think like real people would say. So Mm -hmm. not that scholars and Mm -hmm. policymakers are not real people, uh, but like how people actually talk about technology in the Mm -hmm. daily lives, like people I know um, Mm -hmm. and how they would answer some of these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, so that was... Enjoyed that, enjoyed all the interviews. Um, And sort of on that note, I wanted to ask, uh, who is the audience for this? Mm -hmm. So obviously, I have a hunch that (laughs) scholars need to read this (laughs) who care about the digital, Mm -hmm. um, as well as policymakers, Mm -hmm. which is also, I think, maybe you can talk a little bit about your writing style and maybe some of the people you are targeting Mm -hmm. as audiences. Mm -hmm. But I'm Mm -hmm. curious to know if there are other people as well uh, Mm -hmm. that you were thinking of. And I really also appreciated how, when you were talking about some of your interviewees or your interlocutors in here, uh, you had a line that said you you hoped you'd gotten it right. Um, And I really, that was really, yeah, that was really great to just sort of solidify that relationship um, you had with them
0: as people. I am sure that I didn't get it 100% right, (laughs) Um, but yeah, it is still my hope that I did. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of this comes from as far as, you know, thinking about audience when I think about, you know, what, who the audience I wanted to be for the book. um, When I was thinking about it as a PhD student, I'm, you know, I'm a first generation academic, right? Like I don't have um, a whole, I didn't have a whole lot of experience in this industry, in this area um, before deciding that I wanted to go to school forever and never leave. Um, And it was news to me that scholars should be the main audience for my book <laughs> um, and I never when I, I always wanted to write books um, I never really wanted to write for other scholars really like I just didn't think that that was my role right like it, it wasn't necessarily what I felt called to do at the time I think now that I am a bit more um uh, that I've gotten you know I've written this book and I see the way that these conversations take shape I, I see the power that I have um, and the privilege that I have in speaking to other scholars and generating ideas in that way and I think I have a different perspective on that now than I did as a PhD student but um, so this is just the way that I write right like it's, it's not um, it's not a conscious choice it's just kind of the way it comes out um, but I always kind of felt thinking about it a little bit after the fact, um, that it seems strange to me as a as a person who considers himself a critical scholar, right, mm-hmm. um, that I always felt like the people who I'm writing about, their lives, yeah. should want to read the book or be able to read it and get something out of it or see themselves in some way yeah. um, in the book. Um, and, and to maybe be able to think about their per, what felt like personal struggles in a different way, right? So this is, I'm, I'm trained as a sociologist, and this is like a classic sociological, you know, understanding of like what sociology is supposed to do, especially thinking about, you know, we often call it public sociology, right? Which is like sociology that's aimed at a larger audience beyond just academic, other academics. Um, where, you know, it's our job. It's a part of our duty um, once we are trained in this way of seeing the world to put people's personal, individual experiences into a different kind of context and to say, like, hey, it's not just you, right? Um, That, you know, this is these social problems, what these things that feel like individual problems are actually social problems that have um, these societal contours, right? And it's not just because you are bad at using your phone. It is because it's how it's set up, right? It's how your job is set up. It's how, you know, society is set up right now in, in some ways against you um and so or for you right as as uh, i talked about with the high wage workers so um i think that was a big part of you know how naively maybe um how i how i understood the audience of the book primarily i would yeah. say um when i started out um but since then i think you know i've been more aware of you know what this bucket of like policymakers like how varied that bucket is of people um there's so many folks whose jobs job titles could fall under that and who touch social policy in a lot of different ways, including other researchers who are not academics, but who are in the research sphere. Um, I was able to do a, a stint at the um, Data and Society Research Institute in New York and uh, as, a, as a postdoc, and that really kind of broadened my understanding of like what can social science research do and how it can be influential um, in in some exciting ways and also in potentially some deeply problematic ways right as to um, the amount of power that we have as social researchers to influence the framing of particular kinds of conversations so um, that was on my mind also as I was kind of writing this book is not just um, ivory tower kind of academics but people who um, are nonetheless trained as social science but who are um, you know in more industry spaces shall we say
1: yeah. Um, and speaking of industries, um, <laughs> so yeah, the more I read through the book, the more I realized like all the things you're saying about the gig economy touch mm-hmm. everybody, so mm. they apply to so many industries, um, and yet you had a very specific weight. Also, you have a really good methods section in the back, which I really appreciated.
0: I love a methods appendix. Thank yes. you. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> so obviously, you know, you didn't have all the time in the world. You had to pick... Uh, a certain number of respondents mm-hmm. and you had four very specific locations mm-hmm. where you were mm-hmm. um, doing your interviews. And you also let your respondents pick where they where they were talking to you, mm-hmm. um, which was really cool. Um, so, can you take us through the process of who you talked to mm-hmm. and why? How do you even get to this, I hate to say the word sample, but yes, sample. Yeah doing the social sciences, uh, <laughs> were there any sort of surprising things you found as you were doing yeah. this? Is there anything you'd do differently now, sort of looking back?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, was, I came at this, designing this project from this tradition of um, looking at work through organizations, right? Yeah. So again, trained as a sociologist, there's this long tradition of organization kind of workplace studies, right? So the sociologist comes from the outside, sets up camp in a meeting room or in a break room or you know maybe crouched outside on a sidewalk trying to talk <laughs> to workers and management or whoever in a particular workplace, yeah. right? Um, when I decided to study contingent and independent workers, though, what I realized was they don't really have one workplace, right? They yeah. actually have a ton of different workplaces, sometimes even on the same day, <laughs> they have a bunch of different workplaces. Um, so I wasn't necessarily able to do that. Um, yeah. And I had to find a different way um, to meet these folks and to kind of figure out who was going to be included in that study. And so what I realized as I was, um, you know, getting to know this space a little bit more, talking to friends who were in my mind, the ideal interviewee and saying like, okay, if I wanted to find you, right? Like how, how would I find you yeah. um, in, in, in recruitment? I realized that um, a big way uh, that these workers encounter their technology um, and the types of technologies that I was interested in talking to them about were through consumer technology stores, right? Like retail locations of where they had to buy (laughs) these things, where they went to research them, where they went to hold them, where they went to ask questions when the stuff broke. Mm -hmm. Um, And as um, independent workers, as contingent workers, that's a large part of like how they got the tech into their lives, right? Um, So once I started, once I kind of landed on that, I decided I had to learn more about technology retail in the US, like consumer retail. And once I realized that um, digital tech retail in the U.S. is extremely segregated by class and often by neighborhood in terms of the types of stores that cater to different kinds of income demographics, I thought this is a perfect um, prism to understand social class, right, Um, and a perfect way that I can um, start approaching um, people who are likely to have these different kinds of jobs, white-collar jobs and kind of more um, low-income service jobs. Um, by meeting them in stores, right? Where they're actually purchasing the stuff or really outside of the stores <laughs> <laughs> where they were purchasing stuff because sometimes I was not allowed into the store. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that was, um, that was how I ended up picking that way of like recruiting people and how yeah. I actually constructed the sample. In terms of geography, so, you know, a lot of talk about digital inequalities in the United States is about home internet access. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big way that we measure like who has you know who is more connected and who isn't um, is largely through home internet consumption. Um, and what I knew at the time was that it's deeply segregated by, based on geography, right? So yeah. we have like really poor. Um, connection rates in more rural areas. We have better connection rates in urban areas, but even within urban areas, it's like deeply segregated based on neighborhood, right? Um, And the suburbs are kind of somewhere in between, and it kind of depends on like how proximate you are to an urban area or not. Um, So when I was um, constructing the sample, I also felt like that was a really important aspect to get into this, right? Because people's... um, feelings about their connection is probably going to be deeply shaped by how good <laughs> those connections are yeah. um, and how necessary they felt in their everyday lives, right? So it could be that, you know, this intense dependence that I was seeing in my urban sample just wasn't going to be there for the folks in the rural areas, right? Um, that wasn't necessarily the case, actually, yeah. um, and maybe that was something a bit more surprising that I found. Yeah. Um, but uh, is there anything I would do differently? Always,
1: <laughs> always is the reason. That's why we keep writing books, right?
0: Um, yes, I think looking back at it, the thing, and I write about this in the methods appendix a little bit, is the thing that is missing in a really glaring way from this book that I've tried to kind of remedy with an article that came out after the book was published, is race, right? That. Um, both in the people who are in these different types of jobs, right? So we, we look at um, workers who are um, segmented into the parts of the labor market that I was studying. Mm-hmm. Those trends are deeply shaped on race, right? Are deeply shaped by yeah. racial inequalities in the labor market in general, right? Who, quote unquote, opts into or chooses these jobs um, has to do with who gets shut out of other parts of the labor market, right? Yeah. Um, so that's really important and something that I didn't see as central to the study and that subsequently became very obvious that it was very central to the study. Um, so that's one thing that I wish I had thought of earlier and that um, an article that I wrote uh, that came out last year, two years ago? What year is it? I don't know, um, Is uh, it's called Policing the Digital Divide. I wrote yes. it with Yif Welkis and um, Tian Yang, a PhD student, now not a PhD student anymore, um, from <laughs> Annenberg. Um, was kind of trying to understand quantitatively, right, like how neighborhood and race intersect to um, shape who has access to the internet in more public spaces. Um, So, and I'm also going to be looking more centrally at race in my upcoming book project, which I'm also excited about. Um, And then the second is, that's the major regret, I would say. (laughs) The second regret is, man, I would have really liked to talk to more employers. Um, That I really would have loved to talk to the managers of these um, independent contingent workers where I could have. Um, I had some bosses in the study just because they were also contingent workers, right? They were also uh, running their own business and they had a couple of employees, right? So I kind of got that a little bit, um, but it was mostly by accident. <laughs> and It wasn't because it was something I sought out. Um, and I should say this is a tradition in, um, I would say a problematic tradition in the sociology of work and labor, is really um, understanding these issues from a worker-side perspective Mm -hmm. first, which I think is not necessarily a bad thing, Um, and then kind of asking the more relational questions about, like, okay, well, how are these dynamics produced, right? Um, How does the employment relation actually shape um, the way that these uh, workers feel policed when they use their technologies or they feel pressured to put them away in their locker or they feel like their manager... Who's on shift tonight is cool, and so I'm going to keep it in my apron pocket, right? Like, how does that work Um, from the manager's perspective? I think um, is another thing that I would do differently next time.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that in the anecdotes where uh, folks are talking about, yeah, being surveyed in the warehouse, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about like who's doing the surveying Mm -hmm. and like how much pressure are they under, and sort of how high are are we going Mm -hmm. and how we define a worker. So yeah, uh, really interesting that, and I was also thinking about in the pandemic, how, uh, you know, when people, well, we're still in the pandemic, (laughs) but when folks, especially uh, more the tech workers uh, Mm. that I've been talking to, uh, or people that are sort of doing on-screen work, Mm the ways that people were then being surveyed Mm -hmm. in their homes Mm -hmm. um, and how they were all trying to circumvent that by, I don't know, like moving the mouse certain ways Mm -hmm. and getting clickers Mm -hmm. and things Mm -hmm. like
0: that. The mouse jigglers.
1: Uh, Yeah, and how, how, you know, how that, you know, that stuff was happening in the warehouse, but like sort of very similar uh, Mm -hmm. dynamics Mm -hmm. were also still there Mm -hmm. uh, and now sort of like across what we see as class differences Mm -hmm, right
0: mm
1: -hmm. Um, so yes about this pandemic
0: How about that? A lot of it, yeah. A lot of a
1: lot of what you've been saying is really salient, um, I think. Uh, so you did, like you said, you, you did start working on this book, a lot of the things in this book before the pandemic mm. in 2013, mm-hmm. um, but you sort of don't mention anything about it until towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So you <laughs> sort of leave us with thoughts and speculations until about the last chapter of the book. So how has the ongoing <laughs> pandemic influence or even changed maybe some of your initial thoughts about where this book would go mm-hmm. or like what it could apply to?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about more, it's more of an observation than really like, you know, a finding or a conclusion of the book. But um, in, the, in the chapter, in one of the chapters on um, low-wage workers, I point out that, this pressure to brand oneself, right? To kind of appear as a productive and completely having it all together kind of worker and person on social media that has become more of an expectation of white collar jobs has now being shoved down the income ladder towards lower income jobs, right? I think I give the the example of like nannies and childcare workers and right, there's like other um, workers like that who Um, their uh, social media identities have become enrolled into their employability in a way that it wasn't the case for those types of jobs before. Um, And I think that that's interesting, right? When we see trends kind of um, between high-wage and low-wage workers, we see kind of leakage across the class barrier, right? And so with the pandemic, one of the things I've been thinking about is how um, workplace surveillance is going in the opposite direction, right? So the workers who have been very used to workplace surveillance, who have been dealing with either direct eyes on them because they're all working in the same, on the same factory floor or on the same um, retail floor, right, or in the same restaurant, um, the lower-wage workers who are used to that kind of surveillance, that, those kinds of experiences are being shoved up the income <laughs> ladder, right? Um, and higher-wage workers who are not used to that kind of surveillance are now experiencing it, right? Um, And in the chapter on resistance, I talk about these white collar workers who are kind of poaching time in different kinds of ways, right? So they're um, in their, you know, uh, white collar office jobs and they're like using company resources and time to hustle on the side, right? Like for their other kinds of gigs that they have. And um, I think that that is a privilege that white collar workers have been used to enjoying um, for a long time. Um, and as uh, maybe becoming a little bit more difficult to do. Um, although I have to say that, you know, and I haven't done any systematic research on this, but I do remember this like splashy news story during the pandemic about these folks who have two jobs, right? They're like ho- simultaneously holding down two full-time um, white collar jobs. And I'm just like, maybe that privilege still exists, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I think that that kind of um, being able to control your visibility in very strategic ways is still very weighted towards one of those groups, towards the high-wage workers than it is for the low-wage workers, right? It's just like that privilege continues, I think, even despite these, um, this growing awareness of the ways that white-collar workers are being surveilled. I'm not sure it's in the same ways. I don't think it's to the same depth. I don't think it's in the same ways as, as the, the low-wage workers that I talk to. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I won't name names, but I definitely know people. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. were doing the uh, yeah. thing. It was absolutely because they could, right? Yeah. You know, even the way the way given time or mm-hmm. company time was very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah. Um, so, alongside that, the book does a really good job of dra- breaking down a lot of binaries, dichotomies, um, assumptions, even. Um, so things like you know what we've been talking about. You know, white-collar professionals and low-wage service workers, and how mm-hmm. that features in the digital uh, gig economy, uh, the global north and the global south. So a lot of the things actually you were talking about. Um, <clears throat> About how people sort of like access different phone plans and things like that mm. felt really familiar to me because <laughs> I've experienced those things that I'd never really thought about them in a U.S. context mm. mm-hmm, because I also mm-hmm. like show up differently um, mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. than I do in some of the places I've been. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found that really, really fascinating. Um, as well as even how we define precarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you play around with the term and you problematize it. Um, and you talk about how scholars have uh, conceptualized it before, mm-hmm. and even sort of talked about how inclusion and equality work in uh, mm-hmm. the so-called digital divide. So you have a lot, a lot to talk about mm-hmm. uh, there. Uh, so for our listeners who have not yet gotten their hands on the book but need a little teaser, uh, can you outline some of your core claims, uh, your core arguments? Uh, Um, here, like sort of some really, really, some takeaway points that are at the core of the book? Sure. Yeah.
0: Uh, (laughs) To to the extent that I, (laughs) obviously there's too much to be had in a particular soundbite. Um, You know, one of the kind of aha moments for me in framing the book was really in thinking about like, okay, how have we been talking about this issue of digital inequality so far, right? Um, before left to our own devices, before I would even say this like re- more recent like crop of digital inequality scholarship, right? Because yeah. um, I do think there are there are turns um, in this in these trends in the scholarship, um, is that inequality is largely conceptualized as a problem of exclusion, right? And saying like, okay, the problem is the reason that we have inequality along that we see being patterned through or by digital technologies or access to the internet. Is because people do not have access, don't have the same type of access, or don't have don't have the same kinds of skills that they need in order to access these technologies, right, or use them, exploit them to their full potential. And what doing this kind of comparative work between um, high uh, high wage and low wage work, or white collar and you know blue collar, or no collar work, um, has shown me is that. It's not exclusion, actually, um, that, you know, I think in reading the book and doing this research, uh, nobody would argue that there are inequalities in between the sets of the two sets of workers as I kind of categorize them. There are definite inequalities between these two sets of workers. However, those categories or those inequalities are not necessarily patterned by exclusion from access because the low-wage workers are including themselves at great cost um, into internet access, into the skills that they need and things like that. Um, And so one of the kind of reframings that I hope I'm able to achieve with the book, again, along with a host of other scholars who are doing this work along with me, I think, um, is in kind of trying to shake up this idea, this assumption that exclusion is based on, or uh, inequalities is ba- are based on exclusion alone, yeah. and instead to say, what are the terms of inclusion? And who gets to control those terms? How much power do different sets of people have over determining how they are included um, into? the digital economy, for example, or into um, even, you know, if, if the school is your institution of choice, right? Like into school-based um, systems of, of digital technology, whatever it might be. Um, so I think kind of changing the type of question that we're asking about inequality is a really important point of this book. Um, and then, uh, let me see, how we think about precarity. So. And maybe this is for a different kind of audience. This is maybe for a more like calm media, like platform studies audience, I would say. Um, Another key intervention is to say, we need to be looking at these technologies way more widely than we have been, right? Um, There are way more workers who are doing way more types of jobs um, who matter to us in our understandings of what these technologies are doing in the world, than we are currently allowing into our studies. Um, And so we need to have a much broader imagination of the kinds of industries that are being transformed by this about, and not just like AI is gonna transform everything, not in that kind of way, but in like the very concrete way of, hey, you know, this McDonald's has a Facebook group where they're trading shifts, Mm. right? Um, So that's a platform studies issue are we studying that right now in platform studies? No, not necessarily, right? Not in the ways that we should be. Um, And so I think um, being able to actually see actually existing uses of platforms in the workplace, um, not um, prospective future transformations of everything by platforms, but actually actual uses right now, um, the way that workers are using them and and encountering them. um, That's the, I guess, second kind of intervention or ways that I want to... shake up those binaries that we've been having.
1: Yeah. Um, So one of of the ideas I really held on to was the idea of a digital hustle um, and how you sort of track the way that people have been thinking about the hustle Mm -hmm. uh, to particular racialized economies Mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, so, and to me, at least to me, it resonates. but Maybe it doesn't, but does it doesn't resonate to beyond the United States mm. as a framework that scholars could use, especially as they describe global capitalism?
0: Yes, um. yes, obviously, <laughs> absolutely. And I should say, you know, the it, I meant what I said at the outset in the introduction that I'm indebted to global communication scholarship because, as a sociologist, out on my own in, in you know in my grad program. When I was looking for scholarship on the ways that workers, especially low-wage workers, were in, were needing digital technologies, I was not reading about workers in the United States. <laughs> I was reading about um, post-Soviet countries. I was reading about um, you know uh, post-colonial kind of contexts, right? I was reading about workers in informal labor markets in India, in South Africa, in um, China, right? Um, from scholars who have been on this beat of low wage work and technology long before me, right? And so what I see happening in on a kind of global scale is actually the trends that have been going on um, for low wage workers across the world are coming home to roost in the United States for low wage workers in a way that we have considered ourselves exceptional for so long, right? Because we have seen these digital technologies as being primarily relevant for white collar workers. And we kind of stop. Being curious about the workers that they were useful for, or that they were impacting, until Uber and Lyft came along, and then we were like, "Wait a minute, low-wage workers? You gotta be kidding me, right?" Um, meanwhile, these scholars who have been studying, you know, um, countries countries everywhere else outside of the United States have been shouting that, "Hey, we are using these things, right? Yeah. We are seeing yeah. um, workers use these things." So. Um, when I think about the, you know, the naming of this thing, the digital hustle, is obviously it comes from, you know, kind of thinking about hustle culture and the way that it's, you know, been valorized and kind of co-opted by capitalism yeah. to, um, to argue for a particular kind of individual responsibility for income earning. Um, but also um, as, as a kind of tribute to say, you know, hey, this stuff has been going on elsewhere for a long time and um, we need to catch up as American scholars and as observers of the American kind of labor market.
1: Yeah. And as we know, I mean, capitalism obviously has mm. been going on for a very long time. And sometimes, I mean, people have been thinking about how to resist or how to have some sort of agency, but it often feels really, really overwhelming. Um, so. Obviously, like some of the people that you were speaking with, um, had their ways of coping or their ways of asserting agency, but the problem feels really, really overwhelming. Um, so. Um, I want you to maybe unpack um, how you've been thinking about agency, especially when we're thinking about. I'm not, I'm not asking you to solve global capitalism, <laughs> but like, as, sort of like how how do we how do we sit with that without mm-hmm. sort of getting overwhelmed mm-hmm. by all the things, all the ways that uh, some of these economies are uh, kind of getting at us. And, getting us down (laughs)
0: how do we survive Um, I don't know Um, but what I can say is so you know um, thinking about agency for me like prompts this like post-traumatic graduate school flashback to thinking about the structure and agency like debates and sociology over time so I don't have any kind of fancy words or solution to that or even necessarily see my book as like having anything particularly new to say but on that um, but what I will say is that this, to me, is the strength of long-form, like, qualitative engagement with your informants, your research, or your, you know, um, the, the people who you are studying, because it is very rare <laughs> to meet somebody, I would say, um, who is actively having to live within these conditions that does not see themselves in some way as an agentic actor (laughs) even if they are even when they are fully aware of all the things that are aligned against them right um that there are moments there are you know on good days there are ways that um there are ways that they are in control of you know what happens to them and of their whether they have a bad day or whether they have a good day you know um and so i think Staying close to those interpretations is a part of my obligation as a researcher, right? And to kind of represent those perspectives um, as real, right? Um, And not necessarily to to kind of be um, a starry-eyed optimist or to be uh, you know Pollyanna about it. To say you know that this is going to be the solution to bringing down capitalism. No, of course not, right? Um, And these strategies of coping, as I put it in the in the title, right? Exist only because of the system that we are in, right? Yeah. They are they are a forced adaptation to a bad deal yeah. <laughs> um, that that both sets of these workers are under, right? Um, albeit, you know, slightly less bad <laughs> for the for the <laughs> higher wage workers, um, or they're dealing with the same bad situation, but with a with an additional set of privileges that the lower wage workers aren't. Yeah, um, that. Uh, you know, we still gotta make do, right? <laughs> like we still have to get up in the morning and like decide whether to turn our phones on or not, right? Yeah, and I yeah. think it's in that kind of like practical everyday decision making that, um, you know, I feel obligated to represent that in the, in the scholarship because um, as bad as it is, you know, we, we make do in a lot of different ways. Um, and so in that chapter is, is kind of a, uh, an attempt to, um, to show some of those, those strategies. Um, and I do use the term intentionally, right? Because yeah. it does, on the, on, the por- on the part of these workers that I talk to, these, these are intentional acts, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, as they do feel um, that these are things that they are consciously doing to um, take their time back or to take some control back.
1: Yeah, um, and on that point, I had a really, I hope, Quick question, <laughs> sort of uh, about some of the things you say and suspending the hustle um, and some of that coping. So when I think about coping, mm-hmm. I often look to I don't know what have the feminists said about mm-hmm. it. Um, and uh, you sort of you you start talking about how hard it's been for mothers to keep through you know some of these boundaries mm-hmm. uh, apart and sort of how how the gig economy manifests here in very gendered um, mm-hmm. ways specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, So could you unpack that for us, please? (laughs) Uh, Because I I think it's really, you know, it's sort of in line with a lot of what the arguments that uh, feminist scholars have been making for a really, really long time about Mm -hmm. that division between home and work, which, yeah, in the pandemic, totally sort of like collapsed.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm
1: -hmm. But um, yeah, yeah. Talk talk to us about sort of the gendered parts of this. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, this... um you know what i call tethered care work right yeah. in, the, in the book um is really came from this uh frustration i guess in the scholarship of um people talking about um work life boundaries and control right over boundaries um in this way that felt like it was like freely floating without any gender <laughs> right yeah. um and it had to do with class maybe um it had to do with um, the type of job that you had, but it didn't necessarily have to do with your identity as like a human being with a body <laughs> um, and with obligations to other bodies, <laughs> right, including children and elderly people and, you know, whoever else in your life. Um, and there was also at the time, you know, a lot of, I think this has stopped to some extent, although I still see it rear its head every once in a while, these kind of more like self-helpy moments that we have or like, how do we put down social media like we need to do a digital detox and we need to you know whatever and I, I say that condescendingly because I'm frustrated with that being the only answer I'm not saying you know that people who do that are silly or that you know whatever this the the desire for these um, programs or these words that we have these terms, come from a very real need that people have um in order to cope, right? In order to cope with these systems and to do what they need to in order to like continue on. Um and so, you know, good for you, right? Like we all we all find our ways to deal with this stuff. Um I say this is somebody who is like coming back from maternity leave and had an auto reply on my email. You know what I mean? Right? Like that's a that's a don't talk to me right now, right? Like I do it too. Um we all do. But um is that uh you know, these kinds of individual (laughs) approaches to these things are so separate from the expectations that we have largely of women um, for being available all the time, being constantly interruptible all the time. Um, There was, I think in a great way during the pandemic, this kind of um, more uh, public conversation about the interruptibility of women's time, especially as they're like, working at the kitchen table, um, and they're also being in charge of the homeschooling, right? Or the digital school online and things like that, right? Um, I think there was a great, there was a study that was done, uh, I'm gonna forget who, who I will find it and you can link to it, um, about where people worked at home during the pandemic and like overwhelmingly women worked at the kitchen table and men worked in a bedroom with a door, right? And there was this sense that like women were Interruptible and men weren't, and when it came to children's demands or children's needs, at, at as they were doing this like impossible work-life um, explosion that we were expected to do during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, you know, thinking about privacy, um, thinking about control over our technologies in these individualistic ways occludes um, these uh, gender dynamics um, in in a really problematic way. Um, And that made that was made even more obvious during the pandemic, but was also important before.
1: Yeah. So I know you said the book is not about the future of work. So <laughs> it's about little, all the other things we'll be talking about. <laughs> um, but, you know, as we sit here, I'm really anxious about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have midterm elections uh, going on. Today. Right now. Yes, yes. People are voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have all the shenanigans <laughs> of Twitter that, you know, also have me thinking about what precarity means as well. Mm-hmm. And like where we thought precarity was and mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, and, you know. Thinking about just like sort of this as a way to think through some of our politics and some of our practices and Mm -hmm. values as well. So I'm 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 hoping you can you can leave us with sort of some some final thoughts, maybe some some words of hope, some encouragement, something, just something.
0: (laughs) Oh God. Um. So I mean, I would say my big lesson from this book, um, is that. And the only thing that I'll say about the future of work (laughs) is in the conclusion is that if the present is as complicated as I have found it to be um, in terms of the uh, ways that technology is being integrated into our work, the kind of um, uh, mutually constructed relationship between precarity and digital technologies, right? So I even talk about how, um, you know, our phones, right, mostly are a very, a kind of hidden infrastructure. They're a hidden support for um, precarious work more generally, right? Like we would not be able to pull off the kinds of scheduling feats that we do with precarious work and demanding the kinds of things that we do of workers um, without this infrastructure that workers, by the way, pay for, right? It is a complete subsidy um, to, to um, employers on this on this context. or you know, um, businesses in this context because they're not always employers. Um, that if we have the kinds of complexity that we have right now, um, that the only thing I can say about the future is it's gonna get more complicated <laughs> rather than less, right? Um, and I don't see that kind of idly as like, eh, it's complicated, right? Um, but uh, the way that we need to study these things um, in the future, right, because that's, <sighs> How I make sense of the world um, is is by studying it. That's where my expertise is. Um, the way that we study these things needs to become more attuned um, to those complexities, right? And and for this, for the purposes of this book, what that means is we cannot limit ourselves to the platforms, to the. Uh, technologies or to the uses of them that are defined by tech companies as being important. So, you know, when we look at Twitter and when we look at the, you know, as the example that you gave, um, and when we look at the kind of public, big, public discourse with a capital P and a capital D, um, and we hear uh, people saying how important it is for uh, democracy, how important it is for, you know, journalists and things like that. Yes, very important to study it under those contexts. But who else is really depending on Twitter um, in ways that might seem completely um, unexpected um, or completely surprising? And which will bite us (laughs) when those platforms change, right? Yes. Um, And I have found that with, I think Facebook is like the the best representation of this, right? That we talk about misinformation, disinformation on Facebook. We talk about issues of content moderation on Facebook. What we don't talk about (laughs) with Facebook is the fact that it is like, one of the largest ways that people get and keep contingent and <laughs> precarious work, right? Um, it is where people advertise their services to their community members. It is where people sell stuff that keeps their bills together, right? Like in between jobs. Um, it's where people swap shifts for their, you know, retail jobs or whatever it is um, that don't have dedicated apps, um, you know, for for those jobs. It is, it's uh, an ecosystem for the propping up of precarious work in a way that really has not been appreciated all that much um, and that needs to be studied uh, more in that way. So I would say if the present is this complicated, the future will only be more so. And We as researchers really need to um, take that challenge seriously and to complicate our ideas about how to study these things and where to look for the trends. Um, in ways that might make people scratch their heads a little bit, um, but that are ultimately very important.
1: Thank you. Thank you so, so much uh, for that. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate this book. Really appreciate you. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> had a really great time. Um, is there did, Was there anything else you wanted to mention that you want our listeners to know? Um,
0: Not really. Um, I think we covered a lot of stuff. I would say, you know, in the conclusion, um you know, there's always this pressure to like kind of put like policy recommendations, yeah. um, which is always a very awkward thing for somebody who is um, as uh, dedicated to this kind of uh, old school notion of social sciences, like speaking to people's everyday experiences. Um, but. What I would encourage folks to do is, if they are interested in these th- these things, is to more so look at the organizations that I call out um, in the conclusion. The folks who are doing really good work, who know way more than I do about how to leverage these things into actionable policy, who have really creative ideas about how to help people um, in this very complicated ecosystem. Um, please check out those organizations because they're people who have been doing the work for a long time um, who are more qualified than me to talk about what we should do to ensure this more hopeful future.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll definitely check all of that out. Um, Thank you, listeners.
0: Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to our email, cargc at asc.upen.edu, or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.